um, <clears throat> we want to continue in this flow uh, that we've been teaching on the last few weeks, having to do with our responsiveness towards Christ in the context of partaking of communion. And um, so I, I, we're going to continue today and then one more week, and uh, then we have the outside barbecue after that. And uh, <clears throat> on that day, we actually won't be meeting in here. We're just going to be hanging outside in the, in the beautiful weather. Um, <clears throat> but if you go back to the early church, uh, you look at the book of Acts. So you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And for the most part, they cover the life of Jesus' earthly ministry from his birth um, <clears throat> to his ascension. Uh, now, the gospel according to John reaches back into eternity, and so you'll get even the bigger picture. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's about the ministry of Christ there. Then when you move into the book of Acts, you have in Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus saying, look, I'm going to go ascend to my father, but I want you to wait till the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had some conversation with his disciples in, you'll just read about the, in the gospel according to John, in chapters uh, even 14, he said, I want to send you a comforter when I'm gone, and, and, and uh, he's going to point you to Christ. He continues in chapter 15, chapter 16. Uh, this is all one, one discourse there. And clear into chapter 17, and he talks about the Holy Spirit who will come um, in his absence to uh, connect us to Christ and to lead in and direct our lives. And then we go into Acts chapter 2, and we have the what is known as Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that was upon all people, not just people who pray a prayer. It's, a, it's on all flesh, all mankind, okay? And so Holy Spirit is ever-present everywhere. Even if we don't understand or recognize or even sense him, he is very real and near and actually working in our lives even if we don't recognize it. So some of you remember the time when you had a spiritual awakening and you were like, oh my goodness, I think I need God in my life. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit had already been working in your life. Long, long before you ever had the thought of it, he was already working because he was poured out upon all people. And so today, even people who say, I don't know if I even believe there is a God. Holy Spirit is working in and around their life. They just haven't had the awakening yet, see? And so <clears throat> the Holy Spirit has been at work. Well, then we have the outpouring in Acts chapter 2, and then we have some indications of the responsiveness of these individuals who had been impacted, including the disciples who followed Jesus, and now all these other people who had their spiritual eyes open. You read about Acts 2, Acts 3, 4, and on. But there were several things that they practiced and they participated in. One was they gathered frequently with fellow believers in Christ. They understood this was essential for their personal growth is that they wanted to be together with fellow believers in Christ. They prayed daily. And it's interesting that even uh, Peter and John, you'll see in, in chapter 3 there, would, would go to the, to the temple. 
Now, they were Jews by descent, but they, they were still going to the temple to pray, but then they were also praying with each other. Uh, and so prayer was important. Uh, we, we see in, in the early chapters of Acts about giving, giving of money, and some of them were even selling their land and pulling their money together into helping meet the needs of people. Um, so that's another element that we see the early church. The other one is the, the teaching of scriptures. And so the apostles would sit down and they would teach the scriptures. Now you understand they didn't have the Bible like we had. All they have is a few Old Testament manuscripts, but they also were operating by revelation um, because Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you into all truth, okay? And so they would teach the scriptures and teach and share the revelation that God was giving them. And there was one more thing that they did, and that was they would come together, break bread together, and partake of communion together. These were the essentials of the early church, and it has been passed on down through the ages. So that is why, for example, today, Christian churches around the world, and many have gathered today, already gathered and had services around the world, and some of them gather multiple times a week, but what are some of the um, things that we do when we gather. Well, we, we have a connectedness. We share hearts together. We, we, we sing together. We pray together. Um, we, we partake of the scriptures together. And we partake of communion together. Because these are some of the essentials that were established in the early church that carried on down through the ages, all right? So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've looked at this verse um, several times now. But Paul said, I've received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. For when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, do this in remembrance of me, okay? And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me, now, did you notice how personal that is? He didn't say, I just want you to remember a good deed or the good deeds I've done. I want you to remember me as a person, who I am. I am Christ. I am the living bread. I am life. I'm your strength. I want you to remember me. Now, when you remember him as a person, of course, Related to that, we remember all that he has done. And that is absolutely appropriate. But he wants our hearts to just be enraptured with him as a person. Partaking of communion is a redemptive experience. Just as when we sing together, there's something that happens in song. And when we express our love for God and we express how much he loves us and what he's done for us and he comes after us and his relentless love when we vocalize, when we express that, there's a release of life that happens within us in a very unique and profound way. When we sit sometimes and we just listen to the scriptures and we listen to the things that are being shared, a word of encouragement or whatever it may be, there's, there's, there's life that is flowing into us. When we partake of communion, there are still even other dimensions of life that we begin to, that we experience in that process. So the Lord's table is a meal of remembrance. And so we, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when we partake of communion, we are recalling 
Christ as the eternal word. He always was, is, and is to come. He's the Alpha and Omega. See, see, Christ, Jesus always was before he came into this world. We have quite a bit of scripture that refers to this, okay? If you only understand Christ as the historical sense of him being an earthly being, okay, you, you, you would be actually missing out on, on the greater perspective that is foundational to Christianity, and that is that he always was. He always was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to skip over that one there. We've looked at it multiple times. But um, the promise of God is, is that, you know, everybody has been in his mind even before the foundations of the world. He had all of humanity in mind. And that's such a comfort to know is that he has everyone in mind. The nearly 8 billion people upon the planet now and all the billions that have already lived before us and the billions to come, okay? And he has everybody in his mind. It's in his heart. And uh, <clears throat> every person really has been created within the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're not created outside of God. God is all in all. My goodness, that's, the, that's, that's what Christianity is about. It's about God who has created the universe and all of creation, including all human beings, are within the realm of his life and his love. Nobody is outside of. And that's why Paul says that nothing can separate you because nothing ever has. Romans chapter 8, nothing and he goes on to list, nothing, 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 nothing ever, 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 ever can separate you from God's love. You know, I, 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 just, I just, sometimes it's just good to simply believe <laughs> that reality. You know, the enemy of our soul loves to use fear. Fear is such a manipulator that, you know, and, and, and we fear this and we fear that. And one of the greatest things... You know how fearful it feels is when we feel rejection from another person and you feel on the outside of that relationship, somebody that you value. Isn't that really scary and painful? Very painful, very deep. And then sometimes we may think or have the lie of the enemy think that, yeah, you're on the outside of God. You know, you've never quite been good enough or you messed up so bad. You're on the outside of God's love. Don't ever believe that lie. It's a lie of the evil one. And uh, <clears throat> that's what religion does. Did you know that religions of the world, and sometimes Christianity can be reduced down to religion, and it's used for manipulation, and it always starts with fear. You're on the outside, but if you come hang around us now, we'll show you how to get included. Whoa, watch out for that. That's how all religions of the world and sometimes Christianity has been um, um, projected and displayed in a similar manner. God help us, that's not the reality. We've always been included in his love. We're never outside of his love. We're never outside of his goodness. We may not realize it. We may think we're running away from God, but as David said, it doesn't matter how far you go, God's always there. There you can't even run away from God. You may think you are, but you can't. Isn't that good news? 
All righty. So <clears throat> secondly, when we come to the communion table, we talked about it last week, we are recalling God who became fully human to reveal the Father and show us how to be truly human. You see, to become fully human is beautiful. It's a process. It's for life and even into eternity is becoming fully human. But it was the divine privilege of God uh, for Christ to set aside some of his privileges of his deity and to assume some limitations as a man. Let's review a couple things really quickly here this morning that we touched on last week. Jesus took on the likeness and the limitations of a human being. But think about it. He was not exempt from and immune to anything intrinsic to the broken human condition, not even death. He became human so that he could heal humanity in himself through his love on the cross and the resurrection. That's the only way that he could heal humanity. He had to become human, all right? Now, Christ becoming flesh became one with humanity. He shares with all of humanity his relationship with the Father, bringing reconciliation to man's broken relationship to God. Christ Jesus, think about this, is the perfect link between heaven and earth because in him we have perfect union with God and man. Nothing broken, it's not helter-skelter, it is something that's very, very divine. So through the divine and human nature of Christ, God's love is released and channeled into the world. Now, in the incarnation, there's something that happened that it's actually hard to understand with our minds and we have multiple scriptures that point to it. Um, but it was the early church fathers that had to really hammer through this. And they had a lot of differences. And I'm going back to like 300 AD. And it was kind of before the, the Nicene Creed came about. And this in part was the thing. We have to kind of figure out uh, the father, uh, the son Christ, was he actually God or not God? And, and uh, how all this works in Christ becoming human. But in the incarnation, Christ mysteriously and completely assumes, and he assimilates all of humanity and the fullness of, um, of human nature. And it's because of that that when he was on the cross, the scripture says he became sin. He assimilated the sins of all of humanity, or we can never be saved, see? And so he literally became sin for us, and the scriptures make it so clear that there at the cross, when he hung on the cross, that everybody was reconciled unto the Father. No longer, no longer estranged. Everybody was reconciled. And the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 5 that no longer are the trespasses and sins of humankind counted against them. Isn't that good news? That's really good. That's kind of baffling, see? And so one of the things that's really scary for us is that, of course, the scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, right? And we still sin along the way, even though when we don't want to at times, we trip up. And uh, <clears throat> consciously or unconsciously, okay? And that's why Apostle Paul, though, says, but there's no condemnation to those in Christ. When you identify with Jesus Christ and such, you may still mess up, screw up along the way. And there may be different kinds of consequences, but there's no condemnation because God is not going to hold uh, that sin over your head. So when Jesus come, came, uh, he became a human prototype, if you will. And uh, he went to the depths. And, and what he really did is dignify humanity. 
okay? Broken, sinful humanity. And here's what I want us to understand. I think I said this last Sunday morning, not sure if I did, but um, either way, is that Jesus cleanses us not of or from our humanity, but he cleanses us of the things that dehumanize us. There are things that can creep into the attitudes of our heart that actually dehumanize us. Like when we think ill of other people or wish other people weren't even alive or wish them to be dead because they hurt us or because they don't agree with us, see? That's not human. That's not normal. That's not how we're created. So Jesus comes to cleanse us. Teresa talked about the mercy of God, the compassion of God, and God working through us. And, and, and so Jesus came to cleanse us of what dehumanizes us, but will make us more fully human. So your goal in life is not to escape your humanity. Your goal in life is to have Christ cleanse us from the things that dehumanize us so that we can be more Christ-like. And that's where the joy is in life. There's joy in taking on the characteristics of Christ and forsaking and leaving behind the lives of the enemy that, that uh, speak bad things about ourselves and about other people, okay? So what we fight is human limitation and weaknesses, and sometimes we treat them like a curse almost. I get it. We have physical weaknesses, we have mental, we can have emotional weaknesses and find ourselves very vulnerable and, and maybe even volatile or whatever the case may be, okay? So the goal isn't to escape, the goal is to find our wholeness in Christ. He is truth. Truth reveals that which dehumanizes us that we want to escape from, but truth reveals who he is and who we are in process of becoming and who we are actually at the core. You know, um, <clears throat> I heard it said when I was a kid, there, there was one person, uh, a dear Christian person, but one of their expressions was, and it always bothered me, and that was, so-and-so is just rotten to the core. Kind of like an apple, okay? Take a little bite, ew, right? Rotten to the core, see? And uh, that used to bother me. Do you realize none of you are rotten to the core? There's no human on the earth that is rotten to the core. There may be a lot of flaws. There may be failures. There may be things that a person has taken on and bought in, uh, lies of the enemy and aspects of evil that are being actually portrayed through their behavior. But at the very core, they are a loved, precious saint of God. Not a saint because of what they're doing or the, not automatically, but, but, but they're a precious loved one of God. They're not rotten to the core. Now, we got some rotten things about our lives, okay? And that's where Christ comes to heal us and deliver us from. So think of this. So before creation, it was God's plan to become human, to show us how to live as humans. That has always been God's plan. Did you know Adam and Eve needed to learn how to live fully human? That's why God put before them the tree of life and said, don't eat of this tree, but I want you to partake of the tree of life because this was a type of Christ and this was their opportunity 
to move in that process of becoming fully human. And, of course, we, we know what happens. We've, re, we've read the story. They, they, they took of the, of the wrong tree. St. Athanasius of the 4th century was this prominent leader of the uh, First Ecumenical Council of 325 A.D. But as a young man, they say, even as young as 23 years of age, he had tremendous spiritual revelation and insight. A lot of the other church fathers of the, of the church of that day said. And he wrote this masterpiece called The Incarnation of Christ. In this masterpiece, and I've seen the excerpts of it, you know, uh, and uh, with the notations that go right back to this document, St. Athanasius said, God became man so man might become God. Chill, little g. God-like, okay? That's the whole thing. God became man so that man can become God. We're sons and daughters, so... We take on his likeness. We've been made in his image and likeness. And the likeness is like a process through Christ where all of that stuff that's rotten, you know, Christ begins to heal in our lives and he brings about beauty and wholeness, all right? So becoming godlike is, is, a, is a process. Actually, I think it's more than just a life process. I think it's probably an eternal process. You know, uh, when you... Um, um, we don't have time to try to kind of dig into a few scriptures along that line, but sometimes people think, well, I'm just going to die, go to heaven, and float around on a fluffy cloud and worship 24-7. Oh, no, 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 there's going to be a whole lot more involvement of that. You're not on a fluffy cow cloud, you're on an earth. You're on an earth. New heaven and new earth, if you will, okay? But <clears throat> I, I think it's probably a, a, a process. For starters, when you're raised up, <laughs> From the dead, everybody goes and stands, uh, you, 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 you have the, the judgment of God, you know? Now, the judgment of God can be scary if one's heart is not towards him, but it can be beautiful because God is an all-consuming fire. And what is the point of judgment? The point of judgment is to burn away that which keeps us from being fully human. That's what judgment is about. Now, if your mindset is judgment of being punishment... I think we're missing it. Judgment is the ultimate love of God as a consuming fire to burn away that which dehumanizes us, that which keeps us from being fully human. Yeah, everybody ought to get up and shout. Wow, that's amazing news, isn't it? That's what judgment is about. Most of the time we think of judgment as like, Oh, no. Because you know why we do that? Because we're still carrying shame. None of us should be living in shame. Because of Christ's work. Let shame be broken off of you in Jesus' name. None of us should be carrying shame. Shame for our bad choices. Shame for wrong attitudes, wrong behavior, and things that we've screwed up and messed up. We carry shame, and that's one of the ways you know you're carrying shame if you're like, i got to go and hide from God. You remember Adam and Eve when they uh, partook of the, uh, the, the tree of, of, of knowledge of good and evil? They went and hid and they, because they were ashamed, ashamed, okay? And what did God is like, hey, guys, where are you at? He wasn't uptight about it at all. Do you know God didn't say, I can't believe it. 
I gave you such clear instructions. I gave you opportunity to partake of the tree of life and to become fully human. But you screwed up so bad. I'm going to have some words with you guys. And there may be some other consequences that I'm going to bring on you as well. And He didn't come in a berating manner at all. His heart was still towards them. They did experience some consequences, but God never shames humankind. So, so what, oh boy, I want to just hang out on this, but we got to go on, okay? I think we should. Well, come back to this on a rainy day, maybe. All right. It's sunny this week and next, so I'm going to continue through. Maybe we circle back around on this thing. But anyhow, judgment, judgment is to burn away from our lives. By the way, that can be painful if you resist. No, God, I want to hold on to my stuff. God, and the fire is heated up. No! The pain is in the resistance. That'd be the only way to be pain. Otherwise, it's sheer glory. Have that stuff burned away from our lives. Okay, today I want to talk a little bit also about Number three, reason and communion, and uh, we'll spend the next few minutes on this. When we come to the table, one was about remembering the eternal God. Number two was about Christ came to be human so that we could learn to be human. Number three now I want to touch on today is um, uh, when we come to the communion table, we want to recall Christ's uh, attitude and actions towards sinners. His attitude and actions towards sinners. We sang a song, Reckless Love of God. It's a powerful song. For starters, Jesus surrounded himself with a ragtag group of sinners to be his inner circle. That's mind blowing. Hey, come follow me. I want you to come follow me. These were unlearned, not schooled. They weren't society's upper class who had it all together. They were the most common, ordinary, messy bunch of guys. And Jesus said, I want you to be a part of this inner circle And as we encounter the life and the love of the Father, and as the Holy Spirit comes upon you down into the future, God can work through you to make a difference in our world. And that's who Jesus gathered around him. Let's go to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors, they were despised by people because... Tax collectors were not known to be really honest men and unduly taxed people. Well, I know some of you feel the same today, but (laughs) the tax collectors and the sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with those tax collectors and sinners? 
Did you notice who was having heartburn about Jesus' behavior? They were good guys, good guys, the Pharisees, but they did not know the love and mercy of God. They only knew the religious law, the law to measure up to all of these standards. And Jesus is sitting with people who did not measure up. And Jesus, you should know better than that. These are the kind of the lowlifes of our society. Don't you know that they're the worst of the worst? They're not respected. And the religious people's mindset that if you hung around the sinners and the, um, the, the people who are really the mess-ups of society or took advantage and manipulated people, etc., that you're going to get contaminated by them. That's what the Pharisees thought. And the Pharisees, good guys, but they had not encountered, experienced, or did they have the revelation of the love of God and God's love towards all of humanity. They couldn't see it. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, love is always rooted in humility and is revealed by showing compassion to other people. Then we go over to Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's go back to the first um, part of this scripture. I'll go back to verse 4. How long does the shepherd search for the lost sheep? Help me out. How many of you think Jesus is talking this parable and it's regarding himself as the good shepherd? How long does he search for the lost sheep? Until he finds it. Can you picture Jesus? I'm exasperated. I've been searching for this lost soul caught up somewhere down in the canyon in the brambles. Well, there's other people. I think I'll go on to them. He's not satisfied until everyone is in the fold. I love the scriptures. Sometimes they're so plainly clear. Now, I know some of you have been schooled along certain lines as I have immediately. You're like, but, 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 but. But just for the moment, okay, just for the moment, bear with me. Come back to the simple parable out of Christ's mouth. 
he will search until he finds. It shows how extensive and relentless God is. That's the main point we want to, want to rest on this morning. Until he finds the lost one. Aren't you glad how relentless he was towards you? What if he had given up on you just before you had this, your God encounter and your eyes were opened? Imagine where you would be today. Possibly. He's relentless. You know that song that we sung this morning, The Reckless Love of God? <clears throat> I heard somebody, I read an article, an article in some little Christian publication, and somebody went on the rant about how this, article, uh, how this song is so unbiblical that God's not reckless, he's methodical, and he's purposeful, and on and on and on. And I remember when I read it, I thought, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the song. I looked it up just this morning. And what's reckless? The definition, it's an adjective. It says, of a person or actions without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. In this way, God's love is reckless. He doesn't care about the religious mindsets of people who says they don't qualify. Jesus was reckless in the sense, he says, I'm going to love the unlovely even if they put me on the cross for it. Does that make sense now? In that sense, it was reckless. Jesus says, I'm willing to go all the way to the cross. Sure enough, the religious people are the ones that took him to the cross, took him before the magistrates. It was the religious people. They just didn't realize it. I may have been one of those if I'd have been alive today or, or in that time. I may have been exactly one of those. And we can sit and criticize them, but just keep in mind, let's show some compassion. Their eyes had not yet been opened. And interestingly enough, God used them in a prophetic sense to fulfill the mission of Christ to come and seek to save the lost. But God's love is so amazing. So did you notice how long he searched for the lost sheep? Until he finds it. It didn't say until the sheep comes to its senses and starts bleeding and helps me to better locate it so I can rescue it. Nowhere is there indication in this parable out of Christ's own mouth that somehow the sheep has the responsibility to respond to the shepherd. What do you think grace is all about? By grace, through faith, are you saved. There's no faith response if there's not the grace that comes towards us and finds us and gives us hope and opens our eyes. That's why we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're miserable in darkness and we're broken, but it's the grace of God that comes towards us that's coming to, to all humanity. I love this. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. I've got to wrap this up real soon here. Mark 6, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep 
without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. A few years ago, Danette and I and Daniel and others, we were doing a trip in Israel and all around Galilee. And we were in this location where they know just historically where, where this took place, where the large gathering would be. There's really only one place on the north shore of the Gal Galilee. And this verse came to mind as I'm standing there at the top and I'm looking down over this. It's like a natural, um, what do you call it, amphitheater type thing. The, it's kind of carved out like this, all grassy fields, and it slopes downward. And Jesus would, we have one record where he'd get in the boat and he spoke to them. And these thousands of people could hear him. The scripture came to me as I was standing at the top there and I'm looking down over this area. How did Jesus see these people? They were all sheep. They weren't goats, they were sheep. That's how he looks at all humans. They're sheep. They just don't have a shepherd, they're lost. That's how Christ sees every person. Can you imagine what would happen if we could see everybody else around us as loved ones, as sheep that belong to the shepherd? But they're just, some are lost just like some of us have been lost. Aren't you glad he relentlessly pursued you until he found you? And right now he's relentlessly pursuing family members and neighbors and co-workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's pursuing them because they're sheep. They're without a shepherd. They don't realize who they are at the core. They're created loved ones made in the image and likeness. The outward likeness doesn't look a whole lot like Christ. How about us sometimes? As ones who identify with Christ, sometimes we can have certain characteristics about us in a moment. It's like, that didn't look like Christ. Didn't sound like Christ either. No condemnation. We're in process. Did you notice though? Jesus saw them as sheep. What do you say we come to the communion table today with that thought in mind? Let's come and partake together the communion table with this thought in mind. That our loving Savior, Christ Jesus, not only looks at us as sheep, but he looks at everyone as sheep. It's just that there are many yet without a shepherd. They haven't connected in a relational sense with their shepherd. But he sees him as sheep. Let's partake and rejoice and celebrate this reality that Jesus came to take away from us that which dehumanizes us. That which robs us of joy. That which robs us of peace. And he has come to give us life. We want to celebrate today at the communion table.